Well, uh, if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. As I mentioned uh, last week in the introduction, I've been wanting for some time to preach a few sermons on our signs and seals. God has chosen to represent to us the blessings of his gospel and the work of the Lord Jesus and the kind of salvation that he has brought to us in uh, a very few signs. Uh, Perhaps it was uh, much more illustrative in these uh, days of Abraham and especially in Israel. And uh, and yet these uh, signs and seals of God's covenant and the righteousness we have by faith are, are not as much appreciated or regarded as they ought to be. I'm trying in these sermons not to be controversial or to focus on any of those areas in which we might disagree, but those areas which the Bible itself uh, presses upon us all that we might understand the, the meaning and the significance of God's covenant signs. Well, Let's read together from Genesis 17. We're going to pick up in verse 10, about where we left off last time, um, about verse 9. And uh, we'll read down to verse 17, and I'll be uh, making a longer introductory point, and then we'll go to Romans chapter 4 and see how this very chapter is applied to you and to me. Well, let's read now from Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 9. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai. Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of the peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Let's pray once more. Abba Father, nothing is impossible for you. As we also are called the children of Abraham and... uh, called so by faith and through faith. We pray that we might understand these ways in which you have dealt with men and that our faith might be strengthened, even as you intended. And may the uh, reading of your word bless every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. 
few years ago outside the San Jose Library in California, the, um, uh, several red-faced administrators ordered workers to tear down a huge sign that welcomed the community into their library. That 30-foot-tall sign, which took them three months to build, had been installed over the main entrance on the walkway. It was supposed to say the word welcome in great letters in 27 languages. But it turned out, after it was unveiled, that the Filipino language of Tagalog had a small error of translation. The Mercury News newspaper article says it all. Headline reads, San Jose Library's bungled banner says, circumcision, not welcome. The article begins, now that's full service, proclaimed the WAGs as it was revealed that the big multilingual banner outside the main downtown library read in part, welcome, welcome, welcome circumcision. A Filipino security guard who was one of the first to notice that embarrassing mistake, quote, wouldn't even say what the word meant in front of the women, end quote. I think that that man's embarrassment is also shared by us, I think at least at some level, as we turn to consider this covenant sign that God gave to Abraham and his seed. You might wonder, as I have, really God of all the signs and symbols that you could have possibly chosen, why on earth would you choose circumcision? Even if a a sign in those days, a sign of blood would have been appropriate, why that? Well, um, many reasons. And as we begin, I'd like to begin by setting the stage by just helping you think through that very simple question by way of introduction. The covenant promise to God, after all, was what? What was the promise? That in you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth should be blessed. There is a very clear and important connection between the sign and the promise in your seed, especially. The biblical requirement to be circumcised was a reminder that in Abraham's seed would be the hope of the world, which, of course, has ultimately found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. Also, uh, outside of ancient Israel, circumcision was practiced uh, by various tribes and places here and there, as a puberty rite that was related to fertility. Um, However, of course, uh, it's very different as God takes this and then applies it to Abraham and says, you're to give it to the boys eight days old. Eight days old? Well, what's that all about? Well, although I, I can't say for certain, there are some important biblical parallels, like in Leviticus, where we read that an ox or a sheep or a goat, when it's born, it shall say seven days with its mother. And from the eighth day on it, it shall be acceptable as an offering to the Lord. Circumcision may well be delayed to the eighth day, as if to say that there is an appropriate time that the child may be formally dedicated, devoted to the Lord. And 
that is a possibility. Um, at least we can say this, that circumcision did indicate that one has been given over to God. Abraham lived for a time in Egypt also, as you know, where, well, so far as scholars have learned, circumcision was reserved and required both for the king and those priests and family members that were serving in his court. It was an initiation sign that those who received it were special and devoted to the service of their God, such as Pharaoh was seen as the image of God on earth. Circumcision marked out royalty and the priesthood as the ones who belonged to the service of deity. And all of God's people were to receive that in the days of Abraham. So Egypt's practice uh, may have something to do with uh, uh, the meaning of what God gave to Abraham. I can't say for sure, but clearly in the Bible, as I say, to be circumcised means to be set apart to God and to the service of God as his royal kingdom of priests. That much is very clear. Also, circumcision symbolized the need for God's holy people to have a circumcision of heart. In fact, most of the references from here on out to circumcision uh, concern the spiritual nature of the sign, the fulfillment that ought to be in the heart of everyone who receives it, as it points to a reality that too often was not there. Paul himself Uh, made this uh, clear in his letter to the Romans as well. He's not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not for men, but from God. And finally, as we saw last time, Paul explains that circumcision served as a sign, as God's sign and seal, that God had counted Abraham righteous because of his faith. That faith was the the way through which righteousness would be imputed to Abraham. Chapter 4, verse 11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, there's a long discussion of the spiritual meaning of this sign and what this means for us in Romans chapter 4 that I would like to consider with you today. And you maybe you'd like to turn there with me. As I said, I'm, I'm going to try to do this evening what... Uh, um, probably could be a a series of sermons, but to just try to hit some of the main highlights of what all this, and especially this this story of a promise to Abraham who who laughs, uh, how this uh, laughing but believing man uh, communicates something very important to us in our day, even though we have not received that particular sign, perhaps. Well, uh, the connection is not quite as obvious or so easily explained, but, but Paul explains, in chapter 4 especially, the relationship between this old covenant sign of circumcision and our salvation through the alien righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That circumcision preached this to us and to the world. Circumcision, indeed, symbolized not only all those other things we just talked about, 
which kind of all make, all, all those other things make sense, right? The, the promise to, of the seed to bless the world and the being separated to God as a holy people. Okay, those things sort of make sense, being uh, separated to God, okay. But how, how in the world is circumcision a sign that Jesus is the hope of the world, and that through faith in him, salvation can come to us. That, that does not seem to be obvious in the nature of the sign itself, at least at first glance. And that connection is not as obvious or quickly explained, and so I'll spend a few minutes with you this evening showing you uh, how circumcision is, yes, a picture of exactly that. Romans chapter 4, picking up when, where we left off last week, starting in verse 11. And he, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness may be imputed to them also, as the, and the father of the circumcision uh, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had, while still uncircumcised, for the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Stopping here for a few minutes and saying, lurking behind this whole discussion is the important problem that bedeviled first century Christianity. The demand of certain Jewish converts to Christ the demand, I say, that Gentiles must be circumcised if they are going to be saved, right? Acts 15.1, certain of the Pharisees who believed said, unless these Gentiles are circumcised, they can't be saved. And uh, a big controversy erupts. And, and many people today can't understand for the life of them why, the, why there would be any problem at all. Why should there even be a question? Why should Gentiles be circumcised. I mean, that's the Old Testament and irrelevant to us. <laughs> Paul says the Gentiles shouldn't be circumcised because the Old Testament applies to us. And he goes back and he's, he, he, he takes the story and says, this is why Gentiles need not be circumcised. He, he calls as his most important witness, not his only witness, he calls David and some others, but he calls as his most important witness, Father Abraham, the greatest Jew of all. As if to say, how can some of you Jews say that you have to be circumcised to be saved when the greatest Jew of all time, our father Abraham, was reckoned righteous by God himself before he was circumcised? You are not upholding the faith of Israel. You are contradicting the faith of Israel to make this demand. We read in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham's faith was credited or imputed or accounted to him as righteousness. And then only later do we read in Genesis 17 that Abraham is given circumcision, a sign, a seal, of that righteousness he had by faith while still uncircumcised. It was his faith that put him right in God's sight long before he received circumcision. And this means that salvation comes and must come to every man, circumcised or not, in the very same way, through faith and faith alone. Circumcision had nothing to do with it at the time. That came later. 
Circumcision was an outward sign, but one of an inward spiritual reality that Abraham possessed. A sign that pointed to something, a bigger reality than than itself. Now, that in itself is actually an argument against circumcision doing anything. Um, Signs don't do things. Um, They they point to other things. I mean, does a sign actually bring you where you intend to go? No. A sign can't take you anywhere. A sign will point the way, yes. And so when you're coming, perhaps, and you get get to that point on I-81, and the sign says, uh, Blacksburg, Christiansburg, uh, you know, okay, are, are you in Blacksburg when you see the sign that says Blacksburg? No, the sign points you there. The sign does not bring about the reality. It may direct you to the way, on the way. When you actually even get to Blacksburg and you see the sign that says Blacksburg Town Limits, that, that sign still doesn't do anything. It simply makes visible a reality that you wouldn't necessarily see otherwise. In other words, there's, there's, no, there's no visible transition to Blacksburg. The sign is marking an invisible reality. The sign is making clear uh, that, as you suspected, you have actually arrived. But... Uh, that's, uh, that's all that a sign will do. It'll show you the way, or it'll show you that uh, this invisible reality has uh, actually come to pass. And so circumcision, it, it can't save. It, it was the sign of the saving reality that had previously existed for Abraham, of his imputed righteousness by faith, and that from God himself. It was a sign that pointed the way even to his seed, that they too must keep the way of the Lord and follow in the faith of their father Abraham and believe if they are to receive the promise by faith. The real circumcision is that of heart, as Paul says, not, not that of the flesh. Abraham believed, and then sometime later he was circumcised. His seed would also be first circumcised and then raised to believe, but in either case, a sign did nothing on its own. The sign did nothing. And you say, well, what's the point of a sign if it doesn't do anything? Well, that's a very good question. Signs have their use to point the way or to confirm where you are. This is Paul's point in uh, chapter back here in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. The, the question that arrives as he, as he says, you know, it's the circumcision of heart that counts. He, he asks them, well, what then is the advantage of the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Answer, well, much in every way, chiefly because to them, the Jews, were committed the oracles of God, uh, signified by the circumcision. The sign illustrates the gospel of saving faith, that righteousness comes through believing. Well, the next question is obvious, especially given the history of Israel. What if some of them didn't believe? Answer, will their unbelief Make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Let God be true, and every man a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you're judged. They may not be justified, uh, unbelieving Israel. If some of them didn't believe, well, they're not justified, but that doesn't mean that God isn't justified. See his play on words. God has been true, even if men were false. God has made a true promise. Men may not be faithful, 
But God is faithful to his covenant. This is God's sign, after all, from God to man. God, as far as he goes, is faithful to his part. So uh, that's the deal with circumcision being a sign. I'll return to the illustration aspect of that in a moment, just trying to get the theology straight about how signs, though they don't do anything, they have a certain use, communicating the oracles of God, even if the reality isn't there, it's at least a true sign that God has given of the gospel. Well, secondly, we read that circumcision was a seal, uh, a personal confirmation uh, of the truth applied to a human being. Um, Here again, we see that uh, um, circumcision didn't bring about any reality of God's saving love for Abraham, it sealed it and confirmed it to him. Um, Did that seal upon Abraham cause God's love? No. Did it motivate God's love? No. It reminded Abraham henceforth that God had already loved him and placed his mark upon him. And it marked especially the righteousness that Abraham had by faith, a righteousness that God imputed to him as a believer. And so it confirmed uh, and marked Abraham as one to whom God had credited righteousness, not based on his deeds, which was very important for Abraham because in the very next chapter, he has a big fall. Now, this is so typical, by the way, of Every time God gives a covenant sign, I've mentioned to you before, the very next scene we see practically uh, is, is God's people being unfaithful. But God had credited righteousness to Abraham not based on his deeds, and that sure was a good thing for Abraham. And that is the gospel, that your salvation is not based on something in you. God does not account you as righteous because of what you have done. The first three chapters of this book of Romans make it clear that you are condemned by that standard. Circumcision was not a sign that God had uh, accepted Abraham because of his deeds that were about to turn south. It was a sign that God had imputed his own righteousness to the believing Abraham. God's righteousness. God's righteousness cannot be seen. But circumcision could be seen, was a visible and personal sign and seal of what God had given him and given him by grace alone. Um, and I could, we can apply this to ourselves in this way. Uh, rather than trying to convince yourself that you are somehow a good enough person for God to love, look to what your baptism tells you. That water was God's mark placed upon you to seal, confirm, and illustrate the reality that your sins have been washed away and that you are righteous because you are united to Christ by faith. God's righteousness comes by faith, and God loves you and has received you as righteous in the Beloved into whom you have been baptized. Trust Him, believe in Him, for we are all baptized by one spirit into Jesus. Can't see that reality, 
but he wants you to have some visible testimony of the truth. This is one application of the truth to us today. Uh, Baptism, of course, is not in view in this particular chapter. I'm just making the analogy. Let the sign that you have received point you to the glorious gospel that you might be prone to miss without a sign. That God has loved you and received you in Jesus. Now, uh, as I say, all this is kind of groundwork, and I still haven't answered the main question. So we turn to that now, and for the remainder of our time, how exactly does circumcision visually illustrate and signify a righteousness that comes by faith? Circumcision, righteousness by faith? I don't get it. And what does all that have to do with us? And to answer that, we have to read just a little further in Romans and consider what's said. So um, I'll I'll speak to you uh, briefly on faith's illustration and today's problem. Faith's illustration and today's problem. First, faith's illustration. Uh, After all that, moving, I know, very quickly, but we press on. Paul now in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, takes that passage in Genesis that we read earlier about a son being born, that's that's to be born, and uses that passage from Genesis to illustrate the nature of faith as an instrument by which our salvation comes to us from God himself, Um, starting in verse uh, 14 here. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect. Uh, the law being, uh, starting with circumcision, the a promise being granted earlier of a righteousness by faith. Okay, sorry, 15. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there was no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise may be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I made you the father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, Abraham in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. But he, Abraham, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, And being fully convinced that what he promised, he also was able to perform. Halt there at verse 21. Um, God gave Isaac to Abraham and Sarah intentionally, very, very late in their lives. Isaac could have been given to them when they were in their 20s, but God delayed Year after year, he delayed, fulfilling his promise at last in order that it might be clearly seen 
that what God was doing was something impossible. That he was doing what Abraham and Sarah could never do. That comment I made earlier about the promise of a son who would come forth and be the salvation of the world and the blessing on the faith of the one who believed it. All, all this happening before, uh, all, this was, all this was done very intentionally. God was going to do the impossible, an impossible act to bring forth a son through whom the hope of the world would come and Abraham's faith that God would do it even though a somewhat weak faith is illustrated by his falling down and laughing when he heard it. Because it, it, it was an absurd thing. He believed nonetheless. He believed in the impossible child through whom all nations would be blessed. Do you, do you start to see a connection there between that promise and that sign that were given together and the fulfillment that has come in Jesus, well, there are actually too many, too many parallels for me to discuss this evening. But this is not so different. The history of Abraham and Sarah, perhaps struggling with doubts, but believing that God would give them a son in their very old age, is in fact an enacted prophecy of the only way of salvation. It was preached to Abraham, just as it was totally impossible for Abraham at 100, uh, and especially Sarah, who was 90 and long past the age of bearing children by any human calculation. So it was impossible that Jesus should be born of a virgin and become the Savior of the world, just as Abraham believed in God's redemption through that seed. So do we. He believed God in that promise, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and it was not written for his sake, but for us, that it should be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up our Lord Jesus from the dead. That gospel preaching to Abraham so many years ago, that was actually not for him. It was for you, that you might read of this impossibility and say, well, I believe that that indeed has been fulfilled in Jesus and in me. God is not asking you to believe in something that anyone might believe and accept to be true, that anyone would find easy to believe at all. He asks you to believe, just like Abraham, that you are totally helpless, that he alone is going to do something impossible, but the only thing that could possibly be done the kingdom of God is not going to be for the well-meaning, but for the desperate, as Abraham and Sarah illustrate. And the rest of the Bible teaches, and all human history confirms. And we hear the wistful laughter of Abraham and Sarah, who can scarcely believe that even God himself would do this thing and bring forth life from a body as good as dead and fulfill a purpose, such a grand purpose, for the, for the world. And it's blessing. It's almost laughable. They did laugh, but God did it. And he still does it today. And this is the nature of gospel faith, preached so many years ago, signified in this sign. And if this is truly the nature of gospel faith, to believe that God has done and will do the utterly impossible for us and for our salvation, then we are able to see a connection with ourselves and him with our sign and with his. And we are able to see the great problem that also still confronts the Western world. And I would like to apply this now, moving from faith's illustration to today's problem. The Christian message that salvation 
in Christ, um, well, we are reminded this, this time of year everywhere we look, perhaps, that God has done something miraculous, stupendous, utterly but beyond human achievement, something that only God himself could do. It, it requires us to believe that the salvation of the world and people like us is, in fact, totally impossible. It requires us to believe that dead people come to life. Indeed, it has required a whole host of miracles, miracles as great in power as the creation of heaven and earth itself. We are to believe that God has come in the flesh, born in a manger, was crucified at the hands of his own creatures, but then delivered from death, has ascended into heaven. I mean, it, it, it all sounds as absurd. And if you have never been tempted to fall down and laugh at such a tale, as incredulously as Abraham and Sarah did when they first heard it, you may not understand what's really being said to you. The promise that has been made to you, the, the, the train of impossibilities that this requires for the salvation of the world. This believing the unbelievable is what marked out Abraham and what marks us out today but this is also the great stumbling block before the world. Um, in this permissive age, such as ours, it's very hard for anyone, even including us, to think that we are, in fact, in an equally hopeless and helpless situation. People today do not think that their deliverance from sin, death, and judgment is, in fact, totally impossible. Unless somehow God can do a miracle. Most people today assume that there's nothing particularly astonishing about their salvation. People today have the attitude, perhaps, of the crude 19th century poet, Heinrich Heine, who said, the good God will pardon me. It's his job. C'est son métier. God will forgive me, it's his job. People today ask, what is so impossible? What is so unlikely about God approving of people like you and me? Why wouldn't God approve? And really, why does he even need to approve or accept me? What is the problem? People today do not see themselves in the condition of Abraham and Sarah in an impossible situation, totally unable to do for themselves what must be done, already as good as dead. See the difference between our belief and the world's unbelief. Be honest, do you think of yourself as someone whose salvation is hopeless, impossible, apart from the most stupendous, miraculous achievement of Almighty God? Do you? See, as Lewis noted, the people today are convinced that whatever may be wrong in the world, it cannot be themselves. And someone else must be to blame for every evil. However, he wrote, the true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. A miracle must be done. The Christian view of man and sin, which has long been abandoned, has caused the gospel to lose its power to drive us to God as the only one who could possibly help 
if he is willing. And if he is willing indeed, it would have to be like moving heaven and earth to do miracles, impossible things, to save people like us. And the good news is a message that God has done this. In fact, he's done this very thing again, bringing life from the most impossible circumstances to a a family that will bring forth the son for the salvation of the world. It, It seems impossible. But the good news is that this indeed has been done for you and for me. And so I'd like to conclude with one final point then about applying this to you and what what this sign of baptism may therefore, should therefore mean to you. People today tend to think about baptism as something that's more focused on us, kind of like, you know, it's a testimony of our faith to God. Uh, The direction seems more upward to many people, not, in fact, downward. But baptism, in fact, is pointing to a miracle, a miracle of God for one as good as dead. And what is the difference between heaven and hell for every sinner? It is something that God has done and what God alone can do profoundly illustrated in Christian baptism, which, in this like circumcision, is a ritual in which a person is passive, in which something is done to him, not by him, something done for him. The very nature of baptism is a picture of salvation by grace alone, that through God doing the impossible and bringing life from the dead. It's a sign, a sign that, of course, doesn't do anything on its own, but uh, one that communicates the oracles of God, even if we are paying attention. And you, like Abraham, having received a sign of an impossible promise, being fulfilled in your case, that, that sign, such a miracle, should bring you wonder. The story is told of a traveler in Switzerland riding on horseback in the middle of the night at an inn on the shores of Lake Constance, and he lost his way in a great snowstorm. And when the astonished innkeeper told him that, in fact, all the roads around had been impassable for days and that he had actually ridden his horse not on the road but across a frozen lake, the man blanched in horror at the thought of just how near to death he had been as his horse's hooves pounded not on the road, as he supposed, but on a thin layer of ice on the lake's surface. This should come home to us. This should be the emotional effect of the sign on us, the realization that, that, that we, as good as dead, enemies and rebels by nature, should be justified by faith in another, that he has done it and we are in, that we have sinned And the the, the sinless has been made sin for us. And it should produce a similar reaction. How very near we were to ruin. How safe and warm we are now in the refuge that Christ has provided, not even realizing at the time that, that death was dogging our every step. Now that we have seen this impossible promise come true. 
now that we have received personally the, the sign of the assurance, we can take fresh heart and go on. Saved, but chastened. Justified and right with God, but deeply grateful and joyful for what the Lord has done for us. Not forgetting how very close we came to utter ruin. This is what the gospel means and what thoughts and feelings it creates in the believing heart. That God has marked you with the sign of such a miracle should make you regard it with wonder and praise and thank God that such an unlikely sign has had its fulfillment in you, believing brother and sister. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that uh, we too might have our eyes opened more and more to the ways of your dealing with, with men as we prayed before, we, even in this more arcane matter of circumcision by which you began to preach a gospel, to preach it to us and for us. We, we pray that we who have taken our place now in this age and as the, the seed of Abraham by faith, though uncircumcised, that, that we might rejoice with new astonishment and wonder and realize how, how all along you have demonstrated yourself to be the wise, good, and gracious God, the giver of life, the fulfiller of promises, the bringer of salvation and hope to a hopeless and dead people. We confess it, our Father, that we are beyond help, but nothing is impossible for you. You have made the impossible possible in Jesus. And for this reason.